Let's recap the B&B principle. The first B stands for birthday and the second for bleach. The principle of birthday states that wherever you go on planet Earth, you will never in your life bump into somebody who does not have a birthday. What birthdays do is inform people that before this day they did not exist. Having not existed, you couldn't have possibly created yourself. Having not created yourself, you couldn't have possibly know on your own what to do with a life you never created. Therefore, B. The second B stands for bleach and is representative of the principle that whatever existed before you arrived on planet Earth will not change its reality just to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes, thoughts and hopes, like bleach. By the time you arrived on planet Earth, bleach was not a friendly drink. Therefore, even if you beg, plead, cajole, threaten, bribe, explain logically to the bleach that it's anyway wet in a bottle and you're on the point of dehydration, it will not become a friendly drink for you, for the simple reason that it is not motivated to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes and hopes, since it does not need you, as evidenced by the fact that by the time you arrived on planet Earth, it was here before you. It is therefore independent of you. It therefore will not accommodate you. If you want to remain safe from bleach, you are dependent on the people who were here before your birthday, who are in the know, who will share with you the rules of bleach so that you can accommodate those laws. So that all of life is a massive attempt to discover the rules of life from those in the know who were here before us so that we can accommodate those rules so that we remain safe and happy. Okay, for today's class, um, I've given it a topic and it's called Why are we so desperate for problems? Or another topic, it could be What Fisher Price Knows? And they both express the same concept. So today's um, class makes the argument that we, the principle of purposefulness is uh, axiomatic to Hashem's oneness. And how do we see that? What we say is, is that, number one, purpose is needed for confidence. The, the root of all confidence of, for a person is that he's living productively. He's living, in order to live productively, you must have a purpose. Otherwise, upon what is your productivity based? So, some proofs that we crave purposefulness are the following. Number one, we feel absolutely bored on a day that we have spent purposelessly, and it's a negative, horrible feeling. We'll do anything to get out of it. We'll even simulate a non-existent cause and purpose that we can somehow feel productive. So it means that it's innate and it's intrinsic to us to create purpose. Number two, we feel frustrated if we don't have a clear purpose to generally, globally, to our life and also to our day. Without structure, without a plan for the day, some people on the, uh, in the summer vacation, they go crazy without a structure to the day because they just feel purposeless. Thirdly, because we see that people are so desperate for a feeling of purposefulness that they even spend money to create a simulated problem just for the thrill and the joy that they're dependent on to have actually resolved something in the form of word searches, puzzles, board games, um, online games, any anything that really challenges your brain, Rubik's Cube, game teasers. A person, here a person goes, it's a multi-million dollar business. Here a person willingly goes, no newspaper of repute will dare to publish without a crossword in it every single day. Here, you, a person is willingly taking hard-earned money out of his pocket, parting with it, and going along to the, the seller and saying, please, can I pay for a problem? Please, can you give me a problem? And he says, yeah, on the third aisle, we have plenty of problems for you. Words such as crossword, and the person is happy. Because he's so desperate for a feeling that I actually resolved something in life. And the same thing in reading a good plot, a novel, a thriller, or for the people who go to movies, 
What they vicariously lived through is the feeling and the tension that I was in a naughty situation and I actually was productive enough to produce a solution. Or I lived through somebody's solution or I lived through the tension of how will this problem be resolved? And then the unfolding of the resolution just somehow psychologically satisfies us. Otherwise, these things wouldn't, people wouldn't bother to write them. People wouldn't bother to produce them. People wouldn't bother to sell them. And it just wouldn't be a market. There's a huge endless market for it in hundreds of different variations of the same theme. It's obvious that it's innate to the human psyche that we actually crave problems because we crave the productive feeling and resolving them and in a paradoxical way that we freak out from problems we pray we shouldn't have problems on the other hand we crave them so it's obviously something deep inside us and the the claim of the this all these uh, lectures are that our birthday lets us know that since we never existed, we also couldn't have pre-programmed ourselves with any innate feelings, needs, desires. So we, having not existed, we could not have given ourselves a desperate need for problems and nor the satisfaction of the thrill of the resolution of our problems. So if Hashem implanted this in us, and He certainly had no problem before He created us, what is the purpose of him giving us a desperate need to be productive? We see it so intrinsic and innate because we see it any toy maker. That's what, I'm, what the subtitle was, what Fisher Price knows. Or any toy maker, any manufacturer of toys knows that he's building and creating his toys on one concept, one goal in mind. And that is, how do I effectively create a toy that will give the child the illusion that he's actually achieving something in his life. That's all he needs to know. And the better he is at creating that illusion, the happier the child will be and the more toys he will sell. Because human beings are so desperate for the feeling that they're being productive. So today's class is asking the question, why? What is the source of this? The Shlomo tells us in Kehelas, um, Perikzayim, Pasuk Vov, he tells us, Vegam hanefesh and the soul will never be satisfied. We have a deep, desperate uh, yearning for the need of fulfillment. Probably you're coming out tonight to hear this lecture is probably responding to that need also. It's also nurturing and filling that certain need. Oh, I want to, it's Thursday night, you know, it's before Shabbos, but I want to have the feeling I did something productive with my day. Maybe the she will give me wisdom. You certainly did me a favor. But apart from that, it's... Um, so that's what today's class is exploring. The, the bleach of the birthday, we're meaning the reason for the technical cause of what creates this reality that we crave to resolve problems. We crave the feeling of productivity. Um, so the rule is that monotheism, the belief in the oneness of Hashem, which Avraham Avinu taught us, it forces the reality that because Hashem is the source of all intelligence. I always say, how do I know that I'm not the source of my own intelligence? Because if I could be the source of my own intelligence, I would give myself much more. Mm. It's a trauma that I never recovered from my whole life. The trauma that happened to me at birth, that I forgot everything that I knew in embryo, is a trauma I never recovered from. I'm spending my life trying to reconstitute that knowledge. So it's just simple equation. Now you can't have the source of all intelligence producing a world that is purposeless because we define repetitive, purposeless activity is an enormous cause for concern in the DSM. DSM is Diagnostic uh, uh, Manual for... Uh, behaviors that concern human beings and it's on the spectrum of all it's even on the spectrum of autism up to a certain extent 
purposeless behavior seem to us seeming purposeless in the mind of an autistic it's purposeful to us it's purposeless a friend of mine has an autistic son and as soon as he learned to unlock the door to his house they were in constant danger he would just unlock the door and, and escape he was like 15 years old so they were really afraid a strong guy who knows where he's going to show up and they were living in fear no matter how many locks they bought he knew how to unlock it Finally, she said, my son's freedom is imprisoning us. <laughs> so to, to our mind, he obviously feels productive somehow, um, you know, unlocking the door. But to us, you know, it's, it's still on the spectrum. Now, the Rabbinic line is a source of all intelligence. So it's totally axiomatic that whatever he creates, most importantly us, with an innate, insatiable drive and need to be productive is going to force us into the question as how are we going to define productivity being and accepting the fact and acknowledging that the inescapable reality that confronts us daily that we are desperate to be productive, which leaves us with a question what am I going to do with my urge for productivity? The reason I need a divine revelation, communication from the creator of that productive feeling to tell me what to do by productivity is because many people feel very productive producing evil. I remember reading a, a report of a Nazi, a book, came home one day and his wife asked him, how was work today? He said, slow. He said, why? He said, I only killed 1,500 Jews. He was very, felt very unproductive. She asked him why. He said, the transport from Nitro didn't arrive. Hopefully tomorrow will be a better day. So she said, served him some supper, some eggs. That's what I said in the book. Some, And she, he asked how the kids are. The kids had chicken pox. And he said, she said, the kids are very sick. He said... He feels too bad for his kids. He's too sensitive. He can't eat supper. That's yes. So then we need a divine communication from the source of that need for our productivity to tell us what's his definition of productivity. Because these guys who shoot shot yesterday, the Yidin, they feel very productive. So that's where we're holding now um so what we're out for next is that productivity can only be evaluated according to its purpose for example let's say you need a good plumber and you call up you get uh, you see in the book a plumber and you call him up and you tell him your problem you ask him and he says, yeah, it's no problem. We ask him, so would you come and fix it? He says, no. You ask him why. He says, I don't make house calls. In the, in, in, I, but shit, I don't make house calls. It, it's, it's not what I do. Would you hire the plumber? No. Watch you, you take out your leaking pipe and he'll fix it and bring it and, and then you put it back. Making house calls is intrinsic to his job. A plumber that doesn't make house calls cannot be hired how about if you need a great dentist and he's highly recommended and he doesn't make house calls would you go to him yeah as a matter of fact <laughs> he cannot make a house call for the nature of his job he can't bring all his supplies and equipment set it up to you and because that's the nature of his job so what we see is our own way of evaluating a good service, a workable functional service versus a dysfunctional service is not even based on the expertise of the person providing the service. could be he's an excellent plumber. But if he doesn't make house calls, that disqualifies him from servicing my needs, which causes him to be a dysfunctional plumber. And if you refuse to go to the dentist saying he should make a house call, <laughs> just like if you say to the dentist 
what's this? My plumber makes a house call. Why can't you make a house call? It's, it's plumbing my teeth. What's the difference? So we see we are dependent in order to evaluate and create a definition that is functional to the Indian. You need to have an intrinsic working understanding of the intended purpose of that particular function. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. There used to be a, a, a jewelry store on 13th Avenue. It's in between it's changed hands. They used to have a, a sign. We pierce your ears whilst you wait. And I always used to think, how would you pierce my ears if I wouldn't wait? <laughs> Can I leave them here and come back in 10 minutes? <laughs> Fresh fish sold here, really now. I didn't think that you would sell me old fish. And I didn't have to know that it's fish because I'm standing here, I can smell it. It's got a very distinct smell. And I didn't think you're right, going to stand here and give it to me for free. And I know that it's here. That's how I know. <laughs> so what's obvious doesn't need to be stated because we have been pre-programmed to manage life. And in order to manage life, we've been given certain tools of logic and we just, that's how we, you know, manage life seamlessly. So, what we will need now is, in order to get a definition from the creator of the life that we never had, never asked for, said our birthday, we will need to get from him a clear definition of where we should be productive. In light of the fact that we have all established that we have a desperate need for productivity, and in light of the fact that we have a, all established that we will need to have a definition from him because a lot of people have gone completely disoriented with their nature of their productivity, with their evaluation and their definition of productivity. And we don't want to be one of those people, And light of the fact that in order to get a proper definition of productivity, we will need to have an internal working system of what was the cause of providing that service to begin with. And that's the only way you can figure out if, it's, if that service is actually accommodating its state and intended mission statement, the clarity of goal. That's the only way you can work this out. So now we need kind of ask Hashem, what was your intention when you created the world? And according to that, I can start building up an understanding of where it pays for me to invest my productivity uh, desperation. Any questions? No. Okay. So, the idea of Hashem's oneness also forces the reality of Hashem's unconditional love for us. Why? Because a creator that did not have to create the world and yet did could only have done it for love. Why? First of all, we experience this in our own human experience that the nature of love is that it seeks to expand itself to include another person in stark obvious clear contrast to the nature of hatred love seeks to give and hatred seeks to take that's a terrorism is hatred it wants to take people's life it wants to take away people's pleasure it wants to take away people's security love wants to give what's Big Kiddush Hashem yesterday that in two hours, I saw in Yeshiva World News, in two hours they raised $25,000 for the policeman that was that was killed. And that was the knee-jerk reaction only from four businessmen within two hours. And they planned to raise more and they went straight away to give it to him. And it's just a tremendous, tremendous testimony for the intrinsic innate nature of Klalistrol's knee-jerk reflex reaction to such a terrible sorrow, instead of being self-pitying and becoming dysfunctional from self-pitying, the first thing we do is we say, what can we give? Who can we help? How can we add life to someone who's who, who we owe a debt of loyalty that because he really saved really many children, Kinderloch never, yeah, I mean, and the first thing we do is show our chorus at home. I mean, can't blame Hashem for falling in love with us every minute. You know, we are entirely through and through lovable as a nation. I really understand it. If I was him, I would also fall in love with us every minute. I mean, which nation responds like this? 
Let's first give this guy wife's wife twenty five thousand dollars. I mean, it's got every good midah in it, and that's really, since Hashem is perfect, He only has a need, so to speak, to give, not to take. Ki chafetz chesed or the pasuk mecha chesed keil kol anyon ratzel lehetiv derech atov lehetiv hakeil atov mechalkel chaim bechesed chaim mesim rachem rabim. He has all the good midas. So, the, Hashem's all perfection also forces the reality that He loves us unconditionally. Why? Because He never, since He was there before us, said our birthday, He certainly wasn't lacking anything to sustain Himself, said our birthday. He wasn't lacking anything, and he, he still and he still created us. So it only came had to come from a need to expand himself to include others and with us, and it comes from a source of love. Now, because that the cause, what we are now looking for in the marshal of the bleach, my the premise of all these lectures is that all of life is nothing more than a massive desperate attempt to discover the technical laws of life that were here before our birthday so that we can accommodate those laws so that we're safe and happy. What we, we discuss in these lectures is the cause of those laws also. The cause of the laws, meaning the cause of the laws of life, is Hashem's unconditional love for us. So that every law is saturated with his love. That's why you have basic concepts like because the cause of the laws is his unconditional love for us. So the laws are always going to be pleasant to live. And the laws will always be life-giving, life-sustaining, life-nurturing. Torah is always Torah's Chaim. Torah will always be Pekud Hashem Yishorim Misam Chalev. It will always be Torah Hashem Demima Shivas Nafesh. It will always be perfect, life-giving, life-sustaining, because that's the cause of the reality that He created us. He never needed us. He didn't need us to sustain Himself. So He created us from love. So every single nuance of every single law is just always has one projected purpose in it. How can this law give you the most love and give you the most enjoyment forever? There's no other cause for the creation of the law to begin with. So I'll give you an example. Why you need a divine communication to, to, to um, get that clearly. Here's an interesting psakhaloch I read in the Sefer called What If. Are you familiar with the Sefer? Say for what if is a, a set of forum from um, a translation from a Moshe Tzoran. A Moshe Tzoran is a transcriber of the Halacha Shiurim of Reb uh, Yitzchak Zilberstein from Matal Khanan. He's Reb Chaim Kanievsky's brother-in-law, which makes him Rav Yashif's son-in-law from Zivig Rishon. And every Friday, the Shverish Shalas he had that week, he discussed it with his brother-in-law. Once a week, he gives a parashashir. And in that parashashir, he includes the in, interesting halachic Shalas he got that week. And uh, it's come down in like 20 volumes already. So there's somebody, his name is Ramosha Shero, who translates some of them and divides it according to the parashashir of the week. And it's published by our scrolls called What If? There's already like six, seven volumes out. So I'm hooked onto those books because I go crazy of the depth and depth of the encyclopedic, inexhaustive, you know, halachics. They exist. Somebody asked him an interesting question. It says, I guess it was around about Pesach time. He says, um, he brought it in in patches that the halacha states in Shochan Arach that from Rochza, by Leil Seder, from when she had, till the end of Korach, you should, shouldn't speak. Right? Many reasons, right, halachically. 
So somebody said, what if my, it's a night for the Seder, it's for the children, uh, you can't treat them up as long as possible. You know what kids do, right? What if the kids uh, uh, cry, a kid falls down um, and cries, and I don't want to speak. So they said, that's not called speaking. Picking up and comforting a child is a mitzvah seideraisa of a hatrecha kamocha that takes total precedence over anything else. And apart from the fact that the Maharil says that you're allowed to talk about anything to do with the seder, which person in his right mind has the yeshiva das to have fulfilled the mitzvah of 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 moitzi matzah when a child is crying? Now, the reason that this is so is because the cause of the mitzvah of is Hashem's love for us. And the cause of Leil Seder is Hashem's love for us. And the cause of him taking us out of Mitzrayim is Hashem's love for us. And the cause of him obligating us to remember him taking us out of Mitzrayim is Hashem's love for us so that we can learn our chorus at home and that we bond with him in the nature of his love and feel reciprocally back love for him that he saved us from Israel. Everything is from love. That's the cause. The cause of the creation of reality is love. So it's if it's anything is gonna be unloving or unkind or unnurturing, it's not Torah. That's rule number one. Because you can't have a situation that violates the very cause of the function just like the plumber who won't come to your house. I love you very much, but you're not a plumber. Or just like you refuse and go to the dentist. I love you very much. You're very intelligent. But we can you can't have your teeth fixed. It's not that I don't want to do it with all the will in the world. It's not it's not that I'm deliberately being uh stubborn and obstinate and not wanting to accommodate you. It's just a thorough misunderstanding of the cause of the nature of the reality that you find yourself in. It's a misreading of the reality. Somebody once asked the Chavetz Chaim how far it is from Radin to Aishishok, the neighboring village. So he answered that, how besefer tilim. How besefer tilim. Because to him, what is a journey time meant for? That's the only way he evaluates it. He goes for the cause of the journey time. Why does Shem make it? We all live next to each other. Torah should spread all over. The sake noilum malchashakai. The cholvnei basik rovishmechom. Lokaloritz kavoidai. Lashem oritzum loya. Many reasons. What are you supposed to do in traveling time? Haven't got the cop of the Yeshiva Das to learn a blat gemura. Mazuk tilim. A halva same tilim. We didn't have a different way of evaluating it. Because he understood the cause of the nature of reality, he had an easy time, knee-jerk reflex. You know, contrast this to Bilam Parasha. Totally out of it. Totally dysfunctional. Totally disoriented. What was his knee-jerk reaction when his travel plans didn't work out? Because his car stalled. Because his donkey stalled. He beats him and screams at him. Already three times, you humiliated me. Really now, you need honor from a donkey. That's fascinating. <laughs> Bilam was equal to Moshe Rabbeinu in the Vua Mekoyach To such an extent that the Gemara says, that Hashem says, that never again will there be a Novi like Moshe ever again. Moichen Avdi Moshe Bechol and never again will it be a Moshe. The Gemara says, not in Klanisrol, but in the Umas Ha'olam, there will be a prophet equal, Bilam, equal to Moshe Rabbeinu in prophecy, and yet he needs honor from a donkey. That's fascinating. His only talent on the donkey was that you didn't, you failed to honor me. 
fascinating how dysfunctional, disoriented and far from reality a person can get when he so doesn't understand the cause and the nature of reality. So I once had an interesting story. I think it brings up this point very well. Um, I went to speak out of town in Baltimore. And it was the nature of the conference it just shows that this really was many years ago, like a good 13, 14 years ago. And the nature of the, 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 of the conference was, academic conference, was how the Yudhikam Ikram, the 13 fundamentals of the Rambam, how they um, are a manifestation of monotheistic, monotheism, Hashem's oneness. It was quite a complicated lecture. It was a group of professionals. And uh, since I knew I'm going to have a good two and a half hours on the train, I took with I was giving three, four lectures in the same uh, place. It's a one-day seminar, a different topic. And I had a pack of notes with me also for the different lectures and things to do on the way. And uh, when I came, and um, so first there was a, 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 you know, a breakfast for everybody, and then people split up concurrent sessions according to their own interest. I came to a little room in the hotel, and... Um, and I don't know, like 40, 50 people there. And I'm about to start my lecture. I go to the Stender and I'm about to start. And the woman goes to me like this. She shows her the hand. I should wait for a minute. I go, I need to introduce you. Okay. I move away from the Stender and she introduces me. Okay, fine. And now she, she finishes and I want to start my lecture. And for the life of me, I don't see the cover paper of my notes there have like always my the cover paper always has the my bullets where I start and it was pin drop silence all eyes were looking at me and I said I thought that ridiculous was here a minute ago I, I was about to start start going through all my papers maybe I put it underneath maybe this that wasn't sure how to start because I had so don't see it don't see it I feel like I couldn't bear the silence anymore and I said to myself come on Three weeks, breakfast, lunch, supper, you've been eating this lecture. Hashem will be with you. Just open your mouth and go. Just, you can't keep these people up anymore. Shine. I opened my mouth and I went. It took about an hour, whatever it took, and I, I wasn't a good judge on the quality of my lecture myself because I was just, you know, trying to survive kind of thing in survival mode. And Shine, then we broke up for lunch. And after lunch, I said to myself, Shlanti, that was nervousness. That's what panic can do to a person. It can make things disappear. That's life, whatever. Accept it. Go to a corner, speak nicely to your notes, take out every paper. Maybe if you speak nicely, then they'll show up. Who knows? Love can do anything. Who knows? I went to a corner. I spoke so nicely to each paper and I evaluated that this one, this one, this one was, was nowhere to be found. I kind of gave up because I had to repeat the same lecture in the after lunch. Kind of gave up. And I thought, you know what? I'll add it to the long list of mysteries, ever-growing mysteries in my life. I'll relegate it to, you know, I know when Mashiach will come, he'll have to uncover all the lost pacifiers and bodies and, and socks and pens, of course, <laughs> that don't work when somebody hush of calls. And all the lost cell phones and lost eyeglasses. We've got a growing list of mysteries. I mean, every house has them. So he'll return my notes to me also. I found Sunair here. Robertson, Robertson Weiss. I turned around the air. So she said, do you recognize me? I said, no. She said, I'm the lady who introduced you before you spoke. Your lecture was so good. And you know something? I admired you so much because I was so, so, so nervous. I never mind life spoken in public, but I had to do this because of the person who sponsored your lecture. I was so nervous that when I walked away, I took with this paper, of your cover paper, and that was what also my speech was in it. And I took it with me and I sat at the back and I saw you looking for your notes. And, and I said, oh my, I've got my notes, but I didn't want to give it back to you because I didn't want to disturb you. <laughs> Right. So she gave me back the notes. And um, I, on my way home, I analyzed the following. I analyzed the following. With it, I would, I'll say it with this introduction. The fact that Am Yisrael, the Jewish nation, is unconditionally loved. The word unconditional means 
that the condition by which Hashem decided to love us has already been met, sealed, tamper-proof forever. How do we know? Hashem told us the Pasuk, Hashem, only in your forefathers, that Hashem choose to love them. And Hashem chose in His children, that's us, forever and ever and ever. We have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of psukim, verses all over to prove that Hashem deliberately chose us to love us forever. And since the condition by which he decided who is going to be that Jew, who he's going to love forever, those conditions were met, sealed off in the year 2448, whoever stood at Har Sinai, that condition was already met, as children of Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, sorry, Rivka Rachelea, no, because it became part of our DNA, thank you. And because that condition... Because that condition was already met, nothing in the world will ever change. It became part of our DNA. The, the Arizal says, the word we know, so the Arizal says that Yisrael is the Oasis that is made up of the seven spiritual DNAs of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah. That's Yisrael. So it's that that so that's what it means Hashem loves us unconditionally. The condition has already been met. What was the condition by which he decided to create a world? No condition. He says there's only one of him. There is no one to force him, suggest to him, bind him that he should create a world. He's the is the one and only totally free willed being. Because there's only one of him, there's no one who was able to manipulate him or convince him to create a world or to create me and you. I certainly couldn't convince him I never used to exist. And beings that never existed don't know how to convince their creator that they... So, girl asked me a great question once. Girl and Bissakadra, I may have to share it with you. She said to me, you're claiming that whatever exists before me will not change its reality just to accommodate me. I said, right. So she said, you're claiming that whatever existed before me, I will never be able to convince that reality to change on my behalf because it's independent of me as proven by the fact it was here before me. I said, I am. So she said, well, I've got a very good challenge for you. My parents existed before me, obviously, and I win every argument with them. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. So I said to her, actually, what you when you are arguing with your parents, the principle is still consistent. The difference between a principle, principle and idea is that a principle must always be consistent. It's a principle. It's an axiom. It's regardless and irrelevant of any circumstance. can never change. When you are arguing with your parents, you are arguing with the motive inside them that preceded their parenthood. And I can prove it to you. Because you're sitting in front of me in 12th grade right now, you haven't even seen your kids yet. And I know that you're desperate to please your kids. You haven't even seen them yet. <laughs> and their motivation to desperately please their kids, the nurturing prolactin spirit within the maternal instinct, precedes parenthood and is the number one cause and motivator for parenthood. So you're not arguing with your parents. You're arguing with that instinct inside them that your kid's going to do to you. So what we here is the same kind of concept. Just flew, flew through my head now. I haven't thought about it, but flew through my head now that we have to analyze the reason for the cause. So when we say Hashem loves us unconditionally, it means the condition has already been met. And interestingly, this is something so natural to the human psyche, Jews and non-Jews alike, that nobody argues about it. I'll give you an example. Let's say a Jewish child, Jewish newborn child, 
was in India at the time of the tsunami and got washed ashore. And the next door neighbor who is Indian and Hindu picked up this Jewish child and decided to adopt him and raise him as Hindu. And they never told the child his origin. Is the child Jewish or Hindu? Jewish. If you'll ask any non-Jew or any Indian or the Indian government, is the child Jewish or Hindu? I tell you Jewish. I tell you Jewish. Right. Let's say uh, this same Hindu couple picked up another child that was washed ashore, a two-year-old, from the other side of the neighbor, and the neighbor was Christian. And they raised the child as Hindu and never told the child who his parents are. Is the child Hindu or Christian? Hindu. You ask any non-Jew or anybody or any, anybody from the legal department. So you're going to have to ask the million-dollar question, what's the difference? And the entire world has recognized that the Jewishness of a Jew is intrinsic and totally not subject to change because it is unconditional part of the DNA and it is the only religion that the entire world will testify that it is part of the Jew DNA because the entire world, as warped as they are about their concept of their understanding of our bond with Hashem, they are inadvertently testifying, admitting that our bond is intrinsic, like a father to a son and a mother to a daughter, and it is already after the fact, and it can never be changed. And the same thing goes for... A co yes, yes, go, go for it, go for it, go for it. The Rebbein Shalom had a reason to create the entire world, the rest of the world, the ones that are Goyim, and it's like every reason of creation was just to be able to give this love. Maybe we got more of this love, but they should really be having the same... The same they should. They should know that they had that their their creator, their creator, loves them infinitely. The God Barachmov Al Kol Masov Toiv Hashem Lakoil Barachmov Al Kol Masov Hashem is good to all, and He has infinite mercy on every single ant and every single worm and every single leaf, and Hashem, thank you, and Hashem. Is, is totally, totally full of Rachmanus on every one of his creatures. The reason that he treats us differently is because he offered us the opportunity if we would like to know more about what we would need to do to be in a deeper bond with him. And we said, yes, we would. And the rest of the nation said, thanks, but no thanks. But at one point in history, humanity's history, until humanity reached a crossroad, the year 2448, that's a long time, any human being is, as a, as a creative product of Hashem, had the opportunity to make that decision to say yes. And I can prove this unconditioned love to you testified by all the nations of the world, even in the Indian of a gear, a convert. If somebody converts to Judaism, right? And it's an orthodox conversion, everything's Kadas Mashva Yisrael, Kadasa Kadim, right? And a year later changes his mind and decides to revert back to his former religion, which was Muslim. Is he Jewish or Muslim? Jewish. Jewish. It's. The Arabs, for uh, we deal with has a father that's, they don't care what the mother is, they're Arabs. But and in reality, it's not matter of belief, well, that was in re reality, in reality, is he Jewish or Muslim? He is Jewish. If a Muslim converts to Christianity, and he is Christian, and a year later changed his mind and wants to revert back to Muslim. What is he? Muslim. A Muslim. And this is the home. The 
the world. The entire world. Yeah, sure. entire world. Yeah, the entire world. The entire world. What? Look, Hitler, Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf, he wrote. Once a Jew, always a Jew, and he would not even subscribe. Hitler considered himself a Christian and would not subscribe to the Christian um, definition of paternal ancestry. In the Christians, they said that even if only if the father, the, that we go even just only by the father, it's enough. And he and he wouldn't subscribe to that. We don't care. We know that his soul is Jewish. We talk about reality. We know that when he gets to heaven, the soul is Jewish. We don't care what he thinks about. We don't care what he thinks about anything. In the reality, we talk about reality, in the soul, the soul reality. Hashem separated us from the toyim. Toyim are the people who have mistakes, who are toyim baderech. The rest of the world are living one big lie and one big untruth. And this is part of the untruth. But Hitler didn't care. He said, as long as there's a smattering of a drop of Jewish blood, you're Jewish forever and I'm going to kill you. And he didn't care if you were religious or not religious. There were people who assimilated 50 years. And he just didn't care. He said, once a Jew, always a Jew. And sometimes we learn the truth, unfortunately, from our enemies. Because they, that, that's the fact. So what we're saying is, yeah, go ahead. I just want to add a small point. Yeah, please. When a guy becomes a convert, yes. he's like a newborn child who's a total disappointment. He doesn't change in Middle. And this word I heard from Shmuel, my teacher gave it from Shmuel, and he says somewhere, in Middle, he takes a longer time. But he gets the Siata Dismaya that he has the conquest to work on that. But the Middle stays. Well, actually, the Gemara Masechtah Shabbos says that the souls of future converts stood at Harasinai. The definition of a convert is somebody who was, by the time 2448 rolled around and Hashem was really closing shop for real, after so many times saying, I'm closing shop, I'm closing shop, last call, last call, all aboard, by the time 2448 rolled around, this convert was still ambiguous, but in honor out of courtesy that he even bothered. Okay, he's ambivalent, he's not sure that he wants to join, but out of courtesy that he even bothered to consider whether he wants to join the chosen nation, Shem gives him a chance until he's closing up for real. The end of Golos, the end of exile, as the shop is closed. Then we're not accepting any new converts, it's over. Because now you want to be opportunists and come with a winning team, and then it's too late. But the souls of converts, as Gemara Masechta Shabbos, were at Harsina. It's the Erev Rav. It's the Erev Rav, who didn't really join because they wanted to. They were joined as opportunities. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So let's go back to our thesis. Our thesis is that the cause of the creation of this world is Hashem's love. And every single mitzvah is saturated with blood. So we always have to look at that. When we're looking for goals to be functional, we always have to look at how is this mitzvah that I'm going to do now bring about the goal of creation, which is me giving love to others somehow. I heard an unbelievable story from the Pupa Rebbe, the Alta Pupa Rebbe, the current Pupa Rebbe's father. Um, that he was very sick. Was towards the end of his life, he was very sick, and um, he hadn't been in Bismarck for a long time. And then suddenly, miraculously, he was in the hospital, and his situation took a turn for the better. And he suddenly felt so strong, 
he said, I'm going home for Shabbos. For the Erev Shabbos, I'm going home for Shabbos. And he said, I'm coming to Shiel for Lechodoidi. He came for Lechodoidi, and the Hasidim couldn't believe it. Those night they had made uh, Mishmeris the whole night, learning and davening for his schus, that he should be better. And they, they were very excited that it worked, you know, they were productive at work. After Lechodoidi said he's not staying for Marv, he doesn't have courage, the doctor doesn't let so long. But he just wants to say one thing before he leaves for Lechodoidi. He said, I want you to know I was very sick, I almost died. And I had a very strong awareness of what was going on in my neshama in the last 24 hours. And I knew my end is near. I thought my end was near. And I knew that my Gabba came and told me that the Hasidim made a mishmeris me last night. And I want to thank you all from the depth of my spirit. But I want you to know that this morning I thought it's already a serious neshama. So I turned my face to the wall, like it says in the Gemara. If a person feels that, this is what he should do. And I begged Hashem that I still want to make the Lechodoidi tonight. And I had a vision and an uh, understanding. And I know that you all worked very hard on Mishmeris last night. But I want to tell you, who really pulled me out from the Malachamavis. Your wives, who when you cooked, they cooked for Shabbos with Simcha. And they said, should be a refuah for the Rebbe. And they said my name. And they said, Lekovit Shabbos Kodesh with all their heart and soul. I want you to know that they pulled me out from Yenevelt and not your Mishmeris. Yes, I want you to go home and tell your wife, what's the mind in Himmel to cook Lekovit Shabbos Kodesh with Simcha? He said, and the women who did it with a real Simcha, they had a bigger koya. It's like the story with the Vilna Gaon's wife. The Vilna Gaon's wife had a best friend. And they would go to raise funds always. And then one of them felt she was her end was near. And the other one said, I can't keep fundraising without you. And they said, only one thing, if you come to me in the next world and tell me. So she came to her, she told her, on a given day we went together I got more I got a whole Heichel and Ganeda more than you with the diamonds were on the floor and on the ceiling. I don't know what that means, obviously. He said, because when we wave to a woman to alert her that we're coming to her soon, I put more koyach in my hand, more simcha shel mitzvah in my hand. Again, it's the same principle. If you're having in mind that the purpose of the cause of the creation was to spread love and give love and be like Hashem and loving, then any mitzvah that will be a better manifestation and a deeper revelation and a more energized, full of vitality of that same concept will be closer to the cause of the reason of the creation so you'll be more functional. They They are all for the good of your soul. You are give, you are giving good to yourself because you're doing what's good for your soul. You are giving good for, good for Klal Yisrael because the more Jews that are orthodox and doing Hashem's Ratzon, the safer we are, the more Nachas Ruach we're giving to the Bani Shlolem. And you're doing good for your ancestors who were davening and they should have Eilach Adairus. And you're doing good for your children. I once had a fascinating story. I was in Chicago and I gave a, a speech about sneers and a woman came over to me with a teenage daughter. She looked like maybe 13 or 14. And she was not covering her hair. And she said to me, you think I should cover my hair? I said, what? Are you asking me? I mean, orthodox, uh, somebody from the clergy, what exactly does she think I'm going to say? I, mean, I don't know what, what she meant. I said, of course, I think you should. I mean, and then I had a very, watched, I observed the most surreal scenario unfolding before my eyes. The more I, I think back now, years later, this was really, really like, really like stuff that I could have been hallucinating, but it really happened in front of my nose. I see the daughter who was obviously, she was very lefting, was very inspired by the speech, and she said, yeah, mommy, please, please cover your hair. And the mother turned around and she said, why do you want me to cover your hair? So she said, because then it will be easier for me. Mm-hmm. And the mother said, you know, 
I'll consider it. And she almost gave in to on the spot, like what I said before, you know, that the parental ox oxytocin need mm -hmm. to nurture our kids predates our own existence because we got it from Hashem. Exactly, and you raise the standard of the world. But that's part of our monotheistic understanding that every single mitzvah was given to us. The the, the Kodesh calls mitzvahs itin, etzos, good, good advice on what your soul needs for its eternal survival. We have been pre-programmed to pump eternal lifeblood supply into our spiritual veins and arteries that we live on forever which is the true secret of why the Jewish nation will live forever because the nation that accepted the mitzvahs that they're going to keep them forever has to survive forever because we accepted upon ourselves that we're going to live forever so we have to survive forever all the mitzvahs were given the shomru all the mitzvahs were given forever. So the nation that, that took upon themselves the obligation, the free will obligation that we're going to keep them forever, we're going to have to survive forever. That's the true, true, the truest, deepest secret, the natural order. So since that was the original premise, the original, the one and only cause of why Hashem created us and the Omasa Oilam, uh, we need the Omasa Island to fulfill our mitzvahs because if we're going to be Makayim Mitzvah, don't go in the ways of the of the nations, there has to be nations in whose ways we shouldn't go in. If I, we have to be kind the mitzvah of and and you're going to be and and you're going and uh, you're going to have to have nations who are going to be above, you know, they're fulfilling a very important function. Exactly, exactly. And not intermarrying with them, like the bomb, and not doing so many things with them, not whining and dining with them. Exactly, exactly, to give us the opportunity to be different than them. And some of them are doing a very good job being different than, than us. And, and one of the things that we gain merit is by being able to boast about ourselves that Hashem should look at the contrast. So they're fulfilling a very important function. So to sum up today's class, in the... Today's class is making the argument that we have been pre-programmed to be productive. And we couldn't have given this need for productivity to ourselves because our birthday informed us that beings that never existed don't know how to create in themselves productivity. So the question is, why did Hashem implant in us such a deep need to be productive? And the answer is because He is perfect. And part of His being perfect is that He's purposeful. And a being that didn't need to create us for His own survival and for His own self-sustaining and yet chose out of His own free will to, yes, create us, will always love us unconditionally. Because the condition by which He chose to love us has been met and that and that is been sealed off forever and since that was the cause of his creating us then the only way that we can be fully productive is by fulfilling the cause of the laws of life which were to give us endless love happiness fulfillment productivity which will give us the best life, which will give him the most nachas ruach, that the cause of his creating us is actually being fulfilled because we are doing his mitzvahs. And like this, everybody's a happy camper. He's happy and we're happy. So again, 
How will we know if we are fulfilling the mission statement of our productivity and not being dysfunctional like the plumber who refuses to come to our house? If it is a divine law directly from the Creator, it's a mitzvah. And we, and if it's a, something that has a personal preference, a preference choice after it's a mitzvah already, if it's imbued with love and other, we know we're on the right track. Like the women who cook Lukovic Abbas Kodiv this simcha. It's in, we're imbuing our fan with all the food that we serve. It's love food. We're doing it with love. Mm-hmm.